0: Good afternoon, church. It's a pleasure to be here to uh, speak to you all today. Let me just uh, apologize in advance if my voice goes in and out. Don't worry, it has nothing to do with a virus. Sometimes when you play flag football, there are unfortunate accidents that happen a couple weeks ago. That involved my throat. Don't worry, I've confronted Josias about his folly, and he's (laughs) repented. So We should be okay. Anyway, to to begin, I'm going to jump right in and address a question that many of you probably have if you've already looked at the passage we're about to cover uh, this afternoon. So if you haven't already turned there, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, specifically verses 1 through 11. If you look at the passage, most of your Bibles probably say something like, this section is not in the earliest manuscripts. Some of you might even have a translation that actually moves it to the the whole section to the footnotes uh, and keeps it out of the body of the text. So if you're wondering what's up with that, let me explain. First, you must remember that the Bible, you know, it comes to us in this nice, neat, organized package with pretty pages and a pretty cover. But it's, uh, you know, it was actually a collection of writings that was written over a 1,500-year period. And the last one was written almost 2,000 years ago. And so its current form was only made possible by the invention of the printing press, of course. And so for thousands of years before that, the way scripture was passed on was by scribes who literally wrote the whole thing out by hand, or each book out by hand. And so they would gather it in writings, either on tablets or scrolls or papyrus, depending on what period of history they were writing it. And so if you can imagine trying to write this out by hand, you can, uh, you can see that it's no surprise that over time there were either mistakes or little discrepancies that happened in the text. And so when scholars compare two manuscripts, which is just an old, a really old uh, uh, copy of the scriptures, and there are discrepancies. We call those differences textual variants, textual variants. And so literally like 99% of all textual variants have to do with things like a misspelled word, uh, inclusion of a synonym instead of the, the word that was there, a scribe accidentally skipping a word or skipping a line as they're copying, things like that, innocuous things that really don't matter. However, there are two places in the New Testament that there is a whole passage that's either missing or in a different order somewhere else. And this is one of them. That's what we have here. So in many manuscripts, this section is either omitted or in a few, it's moved to a different location or actually stuck in Luke, uh, at the end of Luke. And so to make a long story short, it would seem that at some point, the the, uh, correct placement of this passage was lost, but the uh, scribes and the editors who were putting these books together knew this, this was authentic, and so they put it in the best place that they thought it fit. And so really, the question that matters for us is is this authentic? Right? Well, I want to note that there is no textual variant in Scripture, including these, uh, this one, that changes or contradicts any theological doctrine in Scripture that we know of. Okay, and the, other reason, the reason it's still in your Bibles is that the consensus has been and still is that this bears all the marks of authenticity. Uh, and most scholars, though, the reason why there's a note is because most scholars believe it probably just doesn't belong in John. And the reason for that is just because there are several literary features in this passage that are different from the way that John usually writes. Also, the book of John flows well and makes sense without it there. So, it may not belong in John. It may have been one of the other synoptic authors. However, when you look at it thematically, it makes sense that they would put it here because it tracks with several prominent themes that go on uh, in the book of John, especially in the previous chapter, including salvation versus condemnation, discerning right judgment, and the idea of testing Jesus, uh, whether you know, evaluating his testimony, whether or not he's a Messiah. And so... Therefore, since we can be confident that it's authentic and that it upholds the teaching of the rest of scripture, I can preach it. So that's what I'm going to do. So the question I want to start with is how do you respond when you see sin in someone else's life? What do you do when you see that someone else has screwed up? And I'm not talking about little things that we usually just brush off. I'm talking about real things, destructive things that uh, are hurtful either physically or emotionally or spiritually. Like when a trusted leader or mentor abuses his power and hurts those who depended on him. Like uh, when a spouse or a significant other is unfaithful. Or a friend goes back to that same destructive habit over and over again, disregarding what it does to other people. And then blames you when you try to help him this sort of thing. Or nowadays, when someone has a different political opinion than yours and has the audacity to share it out loud. So, do you confront them with anger? Are you aggressive? Are you a yeller? Maybe you're a crier? Perhaps you're non-confrontational and just uh, brush it under the rug. Or maybe you bottle it up for a long time until it is ready to burst. Maybe you go behind the scenes and manipulate the situation to try to fix it through gossip, or maybe to get back at someone even. What about when you're the one who has sinned? How have others responded to you? Perhaps you have been on the other side of some of these responses. But what really I want you to consider is consider a God who is absolutely holy and pure who is perfect in righteousness and justice. How should such a God respond to sin? Especially when it comes to rebellious and obstinate creatures who consistently break his law. Well, today we're going to talk about the Lord Jesus' response to sinners and what it means for what we believe and for how we live. So look again at John chapter 8. The the passage actually begins in the last verse of chapter 7, so I'm going to start in verse 53 of chapter 7 and read until verse 11 of chapter 8. Look there with me. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So this passage begins with Jesus' teaching in the temple. No surprise there. When some religious leaders bring a woman who apparently has been caught red handed in an adulterous relationship. So this sets up the tension in the story. But as I mentioned earlier, note how thematically this this relates to the previous chapter. In John 7.24, Jesus declares to the people that he's speaking to that they should judge with right judgment uh, after rebuking them for not understanding how to apply the Mosaic law to the Sabbath. Then the remainder of chapter 7 revolves around a question about whether or not they will believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And it ends with Nicodemus asking the Pharisees and the chief priests who are trying to arrest Jesus, he says, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So as, it's as if by putting the story here, the editor is setting you up to think, okay, he asked to give him a hearing and learn what he does. Well, here it is. He's also setting you up to think, okay, now Jesus is going to illustrate what it looks like to judge with right judgment. Now, with this in mind, there are some issues to notice right off the bat. First, this whole proceeding is already suspect because what you have is essentially a a mob. It amounts to a mob bringing the woman before Jesus in order to intentionally create a spectacle. So this is already outside of the law. I mean, they had an authority structure. You know, they had an understanding of due process. And this, Jesus was not a part of that. Of course, we know that Jesus is the son of God and has all authority in heaven and earth to judge sin. But they didn't believe that. And so from an earthly perspective, they have no right to bring this woman before some rabbi for him to pass judgment. Let me just note by way of application that the only thing that ever results from a mob demanding justice is more injustice. So we've had many illustrations of this truth over the past few years. Uh, and Christians, Christians should not take part in such things, nor should we condone or excuse them. But second, these people invoke the law of Moses to, as a standard for evaluating this situation. Yet they pervert the law of Moses as they do it. For one thing, it takes two to commit adultery. And the law of Moses says that when two people are convicted of adultery, both the man and the woman should be killed. That's what they're, what they're referring to. Evidently, they missed part of that instruction. And another thing, the author gives us explicit insight into their hearts. Okay, we know that they were doing this in order to try and trap Jesus. Okay, they're, they're trying to put him in a no-win situation. Because if Jesus says... To stone her, I'm sorry, if Jesus says not to stone her, he would, could be seen as disregarding the, the law of Moses. If Jesus said to stone her, then he might get in trouble with the Roman authorities because at that time only the Romans were allowed to convict uh, and execute prisoners. Okay, of course, that's another reason why we know this is a setup because. We all know that the Pharisees weren't about to get themselves in trouble with the Romans by making that decision. And further, it it would also be unlike what we and what they knew Jesus to be like. You see, it was well known that Jesus was a compassionate man who couldn't help but heal people who were hurting and who wanted to forgive them of their sin. We see that all over the Gospels. Some examples you can read when you go home is Mark 3, where there's a man uh, with a withered hand who Jesus is stunned at the people's hardness of hearts and he can't help but heal him. Or Matthew 9, 6, where it says Jesus has compassion on them and he healed all of their sick. Is it not ironic that the very people who are entrusted with God's law, who were supposed to be teaching and guiding them into understanding God's righteousness are trying to use God's law as a device of trickery, as a deceitful snare. So let this serve as a warning to those of us who are responsible for handling God's word. And, well, in our church, that includes more than just those of us who preach. It includes every single member. Uh, So I, I know that uh, a bunch of you are listening to the podcast about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. It's, uh, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's a, very, it's a fascinating and heart-wrenching podcast. But it's basically uh, someone researching what happened to a very well-known megachurch in Seattle. And the long and short of it is they had a very gifted pastor who acquired fame and power faster than he acquired character and integrity. And so I bring it up here because he would use scripture to, uh, to manipulate and to browbeat people into understanding or accepting his view of the church, even if it included using dishonest or abusive methods. And so I, I don't mean really to call out this pastor. I mean, we need to pray for him. But this should be a reality check for us about our responsibility in this local church. That's why our leadership structure is what we call elder-led congregationalism. And I'm not going to go into all that that entails now, but for this instance, understand that it is the whole congregation's responsibility to know the word, to read scripture, and to test everything that the preachers and teachers say against scripture, and to hold us accountable so that we are speaking God's words with truth to edify the church, not... Uh, to manipulate people to get what we want. Anyway, all this just serves to emphasize what this congregation between Jesus and the Pharisees is really about. This isn't about the law. It's not really about what this woman has done. The Pharisees are just using them in order to get after what they really care about. What they care about is who Jesus is. That's what this is about. And that's why the uh, tension in the story is found in verse 5 when it's the, with a question. Jesus, what do you say? What are you going to do about this? This is the all-important question for the Pharisees. And really, it's the all-important question for us as well. So notice, though, how patient Jesus is. He doesn't rush to judgment. And he doesn't even feel the need to match their intensity or their, their impulsiveness or their hurry. In fact, he hardly, even, he hardly even acknowledges their question at first. He just, you know, bends down and starts writing on the ground to the point where they keep asking him, right? And so while many people have fanciful ideas about what Jesus may have written on the ground, whether he's writing out their sins or some verse from Deuteronomy or something like that, uh, You can use your imagination on that, but I don't think it's helpful to dwell on that because we don't know. And so, I mean, he could have been doodling emojis to pass the time, for all we know. We just don't know. So, the focus here is on what he says. And what he says confounds the Pharisees and the scribes. That's always the case when people try to trap Jesus. They tried to get Jesus to squabble over one provision of the Mosaic Law, but he doesn't take the bait, of course. He turns the whole law back on them and highlights their hypocrisy. You see, the same law that they're accusing her of breaking is the same law that they are breaking right now in the way they're doing this and that they have broken many times before. They're all lawbreakers. And so when Jesus says, he who is without sin, that includes none of them. So she may have deserved death for their sin, for her sin, but so do they, and they know it because they are the the Pharisees, they're theologically astute. And so that's why they all walked away. But the reality is that every one of us is in the same position. We all have sinned. We all have rebelled against God and broken his law. And we all deserve death for it. Scripture is abundantly clear on that point. And so while it may seem like Jesus' response to the Pharisees and their walking away was the climax of this story? Or the. I mean, indeed, it may have been the high point of the action, but in reality, nothing is resolved. We're still left with a bunch of lawbreakers that have not been punished. There was no justice, and the ultimate question has not been answered. No, the theological high point, the real drama, starts at the end of verse 9, when it says, Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. And note that for each one of us, this is what it comes down to when we consider our sin. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. One day we will stand before God, just you and him. And what his response is, is all that matters, no matter what anybody else thinks. And so you see now we're getting to what we need to see. This is where we get to the answer to the question. Jesus, what do you say? But don't forget that this woman was an adulteress. Sometimes when we read that story we tend to obscure that fact because we focus on the perverse intentions of the religious leaders. The reality is though that this woman deserves to be punished for her sin. And Jesus is the only one who is truly righteous. He's the only one who has not broken the law. He's the one who has the right to pass judgment on her. So the outcome of this story depends on whether Jesus is going to judge her for her sin or show mercy. Of course, instead of passing judgment, what does he say? He says, neither do I condemn you. Jesus tells her, I don't condemn you. And now those are are truly, truly sweet words to hear when you read this. But I'm not sure all of you understand why this is so dramatic theologically. So we're going to unpack this. You see, if we isolate this story from what's going on in the rest of the scriptural storyline, Jesus' response presents a huge problem. Do you see what the problem is? If you don't see the problem here, I uh, lovingly challenge you that you need to meditate and learn more about what it means to be holy. God is holy. He is absolutely pure. He is perfectly good and perfectly just. He is so holy that sin cannot persist in his presence. This is the same God who destroyed almost all life on earth in a flood because of sin. This is the God who broke out against the Israelites and consumed them in fire if they got too close to him on the mountain when he revealed the Ten Commandments to them. This God allowed a foreign power to destroy his temple and to conquer and exile his people because of their sin. No, this God hates sin. And he has to. He must punish sin or he would not be a just God. And we also know from earlier in John that Jesus is the word made flesh. He is God incarnate. And so if you think that it's nice that Jesus doesn't condemn her because perhaps it wasn't that big of a deal or because he just arbitrarily lets her off the hook that day or perhaps even some misguided feel-good view of love that doesn't want to confront sin. Well, if that's what you think, you're missing the point, sadly. That wouldn't be righteousness. No, in fact, that would be apathy. And God is not apathetic towards sin. Nor should we be. See, not only is apathy towards sin an insult to God's character, apathy towards sin, practically, is extremely destructive on so many levels. Think about it. On the institutional level, think of all of the the atrocities and the genocides, the holocausts, the, the racial violence, the corporate greed, that goes on unchecked because of people's apathy towards sin. On a social level, think of all of the pain and trauma that is caused by broken families or broken marriages because of rampant divorce or the... Um, because of the extramarital sexual relationships that go on, and even many in the church say it's not that big of a deal. So consider also, sadly, we just talked about the, what happens in the church when leaders abuse their power, and it's, left, it's almost encouraged because people look the other way. But let's not forget that we all tend to be more apathetic toward our own sin than the sin of others who sin against us. So uh, let's, let's be humble. But no, Jesus is not apathetic towards this woman's sin, and he's not apathetic toward our sin either. And thus, we're back to where we started. But really with a new question. How can Jesus not condemn this woman? The others didn't condemn her because of their own shame. But Jesus doesn't have that issue. In fact, for Jesus, this is deeply personal. In one sense, being God incarnate, every sin we commit is a sin against God because he's the creator. But in another, perhaps even more profound sense, it's deeply personal to Jesus because Jesus took her sin and our sin and paid the punishment for each one of those sins himself. Every sin that she committed, that you commit, that I commit, Jesus took on himself to take the punishment that we deserve. You see, not too long after this interaction with this woman, Jesus will be forced to undergo a corrupt and unjust and unlawful trial. He will be tortured and mocked. As an apathetic world looks away, he will be delivered up to the desires of a mob, yelling, crucify him and you know what no one stepped in to save him there was no one there to stop this injustice from happening no he willingly gave himself up for us indeed that was his plan from the very beginning that's what john referred to back in chapter 3 verse 17 where it says God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. No, in fact, He came to be condemned for the world's sake. So that's how He can say, neither do I condemn you. Not because He doesn't care about sin, but because He took care of sin Himself. And praise God that we know that Jesus, though he died, he rose from the dead three days later. He conquered sin and death and rose victorious. A victory that he freely shares with those who trust in him. So if you're not a believer today, know that the Bible says that if you place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you repent or turn away from your sin, that your sin will be forgiven. On the last day, when the Holy God that we just talked about judges the thoughts of every man's heart, he will look at you, and he will see Jesus' righteousness, and he will say, son, daughter, I do not condemn you. Come, enter my rest. And friend, these liberating words are for you today if you struggle with sin. If you look inside your heart and you're honest with yourself and you know that you can't fix yourself and that you need a Savior to bring you new life, don't leave today without talking to someone about it. I mean, I'll mean, i be standing at one of the doors, Pastor James, Pastor Jeremy, will be standing at one of the doors after the service. Come talk to one of us. And for all of you who are believers, don't forget that this is our hope. So when you fail, again, remember, look to Jesus who died for you. Don't stop coming to Jesus. Don't stop pressing in and gathering with the local church, we who worship Jesus. And so it's in light of this that the last part of the verse makes sense. When Jesus says, go, go, and from now on, sin no more. We know that it's impossible for this woman to actually fulfill this command in herself. But as John alluded to in the last chapter, Jesus, uh, after he rises into heaven, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to empower us to overcome sin. So when we turn to him, he not only tells us, go and sin no more, he gives us the Spirit to help us do it. Of course, we know that until we die and are resurrected with Christ, with glorified bodies, we will still fail. But every time we're dragged back to Jesus to see what he will say, do you know what his answer is going to be? His answer is going to be, I do not condemn you. From now on, sin no more. Now, I want to change gears a little bit and give you a few points of very practical application to our daily lives. And to do this, we need to talk about what the context of this passage best applies to. So while the general principles of our heart orientation can apply in any context, the outworking of them in the physical world uh, needs to be put in its right context. For instance, one of the contexts that this does not apply to is the judicial or ethical context. Uh, whether it be government or a worldly institution or even the church, there are many instances where we have to make judgments and we have to give people consequences for their sin in the real world. Because otherwise, if we didn't do that, that we would actually fall in the category of apathy, like we talked about earlier. Right? And so if we fall in that category, of course, we'll be enabling and encouraging many of the perverted and sinful attitudes and morals of our culture. So we can't do that. So the, there, are, there are many other scriptures who, that apply to that context, right? And so we can use them in those situations. But here, the right context is in interpersonal relationships, when someone has clearly sinned, and you have either the obligation or perhaps the opportunity to confront them about their sin. So really, I'm specifically speaking to Christians right now, Outside the church, this happens most often with friends, with family, or with coworkers. Uh, inside the church, this happens in our discipling relationships and with church discipline, which is also in a context of discipling. And so in any of these instances, the first thing for us to note is that we need to have compassionate and patient discernment. We need to have compassionate and patient discernment. Discernment, And so Jesus' compassion and his patience are obvious in this passage, right? And they should serve as a model for us. Of course, we are not the Lord, and so even with the help of the Holy Spirit, our discernment can be fallible. But that actually makes it more important that we do it with compassion and patience, because we have an imperfect understanding of any given situation. Our orientation is should not be to condemn or to ensnare someone, but to restore them. And being sinners ourselves, we should approach that situation with humility, of course. Now, to those who tend to shy away from confrontation because of fear or shame, let me exhort you that the Lord has called us, each one of us in the church, to hold each other accountable for sin, uh, mainly in order to edify one another and to help us in spiritual growth. And let me encourage you that for a Christian, there's no reason to be ashamed or to be fearful because you are a redeemed child of God. You have the Holy Spirit inside you and you have a church body around you. So for the good of your brothers and your sisters in Christ, I exhort you to pray for courage and wisdom To know when and how to admonish uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ concerning their sin. Now, to those who tend to be perhaps a little too willing to confront people about their sin, let me emphasize the patience part. Spiritual growth is often a very slow process. So let us not be more anxious about others' failures and successes than we should we should entrust them to the Lord. Remember, just as you need to go back to the well of living water over and over again, so do they. And if you're not a Christian, um, or if perhaps you call yourself a Christian and you've never been in a church experience like this before, I wonder if that sounds odd to you that we care so much about confronting each other about sin. Perhaps it's weird or even... Intrusive or creepy. I don't blame you because I once thought the same way. But as Christians, let me uh, explain that we invite this upon ourselves when we covenant together and join this church. We want to honor God with our lives and we want to help each other toward that end. And so we take the Lord's admonition to stop sinning very seriously. God tells us to be holy as he is holy. And so this is actually uh, one of the, the ways that we love each other, by helping each other grow spiritually and to stop disobeying God's commands. Think of it like trying to exercise. For a lot of us, it's really hard to get motivated to exercise all by ourselves, even though we know that we should in order to be healthy. Most of you probably know what I'm talking about. But if you agree to exercise with a partner, What happens? You're much more likely to go and do it because now you have someone holding you accountable in a friendly way, of course. And they give you motivation to exercise like you're supposed to. So that is really what discipleship is like. That's what we do for each other. So, of course, we're not delusional about our own ability, nor does Scripture give an unrealistic picture about our ability to eradicate sin in this life. We understand that on this side of heaven we will never be totally free from the power or the presence of sin in our lives. But really this is why we take it so seriously. And it's why we endeavor to hold each other accountable for it. So, in light of that, the, tr- the thing that truly sets Christians apart though um, is how we do that. How we deal with sin in each other's lives. And that's a segue to my second question uh, thing to note the second thing is i mean perhaps this is the most critical Um, this is the way that we confront sin is to point people to jesus christ the way that we confront sin is to point people to jesus christ so when we consider how to apply a story like this to our lives we often put ourselves in the place of one of the characters of the story but the thing you need to remember is that as matt chandler would say You're not Jesus in this story or any other story. We're never Jesus. We're never the hero. So if we need to confront someone's sin, well, our job is, one, not to act like a Pharisee. We don't demean people or lambaste people or guilt people into things. And two, it's also not to try to be the Savior. We can't give some special insight that no one's ever thought of before. We, we don't have special, relation, uh, special revelation that makes them dependent on you. And if they are dependent on you, that's a problem. So we don't change people. Our job is to point them to the Savior who died for their sin. He has the power to truly cleanse them from the inside out. Our job is just to remind them of the hope we have in Christ. And all the promises God gives us in Scripture... To remind them to repent of their sin and to pray for the Holy Spirit to fill them and to bear fruit in their lives. And this is not to say that there are never any, any practical steps or behavioral changes or things like that that you need to talk about. But for Christians, the wisdom of when to use such things or how to apply those things effectively starts and comes from our understanding of the gospel first. And so if you happen to be a situation right now, though, on the other side, in which you're like the woman in this story, the one who's being confronted, pray that the Lord would give you humility. Remember that we have all been in that position before. Remember that you don't want to isolate yourself. Run back to the Savior. Keep running back to taste of the mercy and the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. So let me give you a picture of what this looks like really practically. Don't hide your sin. Find an elder or another member who you trust to share it with. Ask for their prayer and their counsel on practical steps toward repentance. Remember, Satan's greatest tool is deception. And so sometimes we can't even see the extent of our sin. We need others to help us with that. So consider how you can invite trusted fellow members to help you toward repentance. And please note that our approach is similar for non-believers as well. It's just that for non-believers, we need to invite them to come and taste the grace and mercy of Christ and experience that for the first time. Until they've experienced the Holy Spirit regenerating their hearts, We can't expect them to take seriously in admonition to sin no more. The world's only option, the only options when confronting sin, you see them in this passage. It's either to condemn others and start throwing stones, or it's to turn around and walk away in shame, or to condone what God says is wrong and turn their heads in apathy. Just look at any social media or news outlet for more than a few minutes. You'll see all these things very, very clearly. So there's no other philosophy other than the gospel that gives you, that offers forgiveness and righteousness and justice all at the same time. There's no other philosophy that can offer that. Only the God of the Bible can offer such a sure and perfect salvation. And that, of course, is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is what we as his people have to offer a fallen world. That's what we have. And so, if you're not a Christian, let me once again invite you. Take a look at our Savior. The perfect and righteous and pure sacrifice that took the punishment for your sin and for my sin. He took the punishment so that you might be able to experience new life. The Bible promises us that the moment you believe that you are freed from the eternal consequences of sin, which is eternal death in hell. You are freed from that. But scripture also says that when we are resurrected with Christ, that we will also be free from the power and the presence of sin. We will no longer be subject to a fallen world, whether from within our hearts or from outside of us. And at that time, the command to, from now on, sin no more, it will not just be an ideal. It will be fact. That will be the reality that we live in. Praise the Lord. So, I want to give one final exhortation to the members of this church, of NCBC, especially when it comes to our discipleship relationships. Remember that we are in this together. And we all want to help each other live lives of repentance and faith. I encourage you to pray for the humility and the courage that it takes to um, make repentance, to make fighting sin, to make accountability a regular part of your conversation with other members of this church. That's one of the reasons why we covenant together in this body. That's why we're here. To help each other grow in holiness and to rid our lives of sin so of course like I said we know that we'll never be fully rid of sin in this life we'll all fail at times but our constant refrain to one another should be in one form or another Jesus does not condemn you so from now on sin no more let us pray Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who saves. Lord, it's unfathomable that a God who is truly holy and just could look on sinners and say, I don't condemn you. Lord, we are so thankful for Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross and the resurrection, Lord, that affected conquering of sin and death. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us as individuals, as a church, to love one another and to confront sin in a healthy, humble, gentle way. Lord, help us to have the courage to do that together and to sharpen each other, as your word says. Lord, let this body of believers be a shining light to all those around us of the blessings of the Gospel. Lord, we ask all this in the name of your holy and precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.